Hey everyone, and welcome to Digital Foundry Direct Weekly number 21. And uh, not a huge amount of news to discuss this week, but uh, some pretty meaty topics nonetheless. And uh, joining me to discuss it, first of all, John Linneman. Hey Rich, uh, here we are again. Second Direct of the Week, isn't it? Yep. <laughs> and uh, energies are flagging, I think it's fair to say, but we're going to power on through this and it's going to be awesome. Uh, Alex Battaglia, you're here as well. Yeah, no sparkling water for me this morning, but tons of GDC info, so that's it. Uh, you're still supposed to be on holiday, by the way. I don't know why you're here. We're not We're not paying you. My holodeck has, you know, I have to use something at the time. It's good. <laughs> okay, well, let's begin. First major topic of the week. Uh, the virtual GDC has begun. This is usually a big event in uh, the Moscone Center in San Francisco, but uh, obviously due to the pandemic, there is no physical event and uh, it was cancelled in March, April time. They're doing a virtual event now. And uh, obviously it's not quite the same, but there are some fascinating talks. And uh, Alex, you've been taking a good look at this, right? Yeah, there's a lot of really great talks, Intel, NVIDIA uh, developers, you know, I've been watching a lot of them, but there's a couple of key ones that I wanted to talk about. Uh, that I think are really relevant to uh, what work we do and what uh, interests um, people have in the current generation consoles or next-gen uh, PC architectures. And the first one I really want to talk about, and I think uh, we may also produce other content for on the channel, cannot promise that necessarily, but is Epic Games' presentation of the Coalition Alpha Point demo, UE5 demo, Unlocking Artist Potential. And uh, John also watches too. Uh, and so we can both comment on this. And essentially, it's, it's a presentation describing how the coalition switched over to, to, to UE5 and is uh, from October of last year to February, they worked on a demo to try and understand the artist workflow and performance considerations of UE5 on Xbox Series X, PC, and Xbox Series S. Uh, and see how they can get used to using UE5. And they had a lot of information about how it runs and also kind of how their artists came to grip with it. And that kind of seemed to be the whole thing was uh, there was a lot of new workflow changes they ha they've had to deal with and they're going to have to change the way they work for sure. Uh, but also certain elements of Unreal Engine 5 are significantly more demanding than other elements. And it's clear from the beginning that this engine was kind of architected at least for this, this new generation of consoles for 30 frames per second games, I'd say. Uh, and if you use all these visual features, which is what they're doing here, it's pretty heavy. Yeah, so the, with this, uh, by the time this video goes out, people will have been able to see this Alpha Point demo, maybe even the talk, I'm not sure about that, but at least the Alpha Point demo should be released in a form. And that video that they should be putting out there is one that's locked to 30 FPS with DRS on. And it's using Lumen and Nanite and a variety of other things uh, from UE5. And it's you know, targeting 30 FPS and it's switching between 1080p to 1440p using DRS. But it's using the temporal upsampling. So the new Unreal Engine 5 variant, which they actually had a lot of comparisons and slides in here showing exactly how that compares. They even went back to Unreal Engine 4's TAAU, I guess, or TAA uh, to compare against this so they had unreal engine 4 at 1440p base input resolution ue5 at 1080p input resolution and the ue5 example actually looked better yeah that's the the really important thing to hear it's like so they're mentioning these quote unquote lower resolutions uh but uh the way it looks visually is a lot lot better um they also uh describe essentially how they uh, in terms of performance targets 
they, do, they did try and run the demo that they made uh, targeting 60 FPS with DRS, uh, where it would essentially be at around 1080p plus or minus, you know, uh, or actually I think it was minimum 1080p. Uh, and that was hitting an average of 46 FPS. And the reasons behind this is because, uh, as John mentioned earlier, it seems like UE5 was architected a lot of these bigger features around uh, 30 FPS targets. So some things are not scaling so well uh, initially in their initial contact with UE5, namely Lumen, uh, the global illumination system that UE5 has, which is uh, using software ray tracing, and uh, the virtual shadow maps, which kind of use a an in-camera version of ray tracing that is also done in software, um, which is very expensive. I uh, had that down to like three milliseconds, I'd say. What, yeah, that's what they got it down to. Where it was to. originally like six something. But yeah. <laughs> they, it was picking up all these tiny objects in the environment, which aren't necessary. Yeah. Um, so, that's... But I mean, clearly there there's a lot of optimization still to be done here, for sure. Uh, and none of these features are necessarily complete yet. Yeah, it seems like, uh, so they talked about this a little bit where uh, getting Lumen to scale currently requires like adjusting its internal resolution of the final gather or using a lower end mode, but even that was not enough apparently, uh, or it had uh, quality issues that they weren't uh, very happy with. So it seems like the one of the big takeaways from this Alpha Point demo from the coalition's perspective is that UE5 still needs iterations to meet their needs for a 60 FPS title, um, which is good because this feedback is, you know, this was presented by Epic Games. They want this feedback. Um, there were some other really cool things here that I think really point out what we should expect for the next coalition game. They detail how they're already, even in this just like like three months of work or so they put into this demo. Uh, they already did a lot of custom stuff, like their own custom Bloom, their own custom G-Buffer support for particles and stuff like that. Uh, their workflow was different than the one that Epic even recommends because they you know, they made the engine their own. They used POM decals or decals as Colin called them uh, and uh, all these other things. And it's basically when the Coalition does make their first UE5 game, whatever that may be, I think we should expect something really special, especially the character rendering, which they also showed off here, uh, which I'm presuming people will also be able to see. Uh, and it's just like a really super dense character model. Pretty expensive, but uh, really good. Density is kind of the big thing here. I mean, Nanite coming through for that, where they were saying like their, their average assets were like 300 to 500K polygons which uh, he, he noted was 15 times higher than your average Gears 5 <laughs> asset, which I thought was quite quite a massive boost there. Uh, yeah, uh, that, that was an interesting part of the talk where uh, Nanite, they were saying their artists need more time with it, uh, but also part of it is the tools that are used to import and export models into engines or even create them don't play well with models that are like more than 500,000 polygons. Like, so... Um, I think the first title that we see from them will have, you know, more limited use of Nanite in some aspects, unless those tools get up and running. But you know, with Unreal Engine four and such, you could use like a tiled sort of ground map, right, to do like a large open space, and then you drop your meshes on top of that and create something. They were kind of initially running into issues. It seems like where you know, if you wanted to make an entire like giant floor full of nanite meshes, like the, the amount of triangles just becomes so high that it becomes a memory and performance issue, right? Uh, so, you know, some of, some of the tricks and techniques used in the past seem like they're just not really feasible here. So they're kind of fi finding new ways to, to work on this. Like currently, I think they, they created a special blueprint specifically to handle this. 
but they're hoping that Epic will, uh, you know, make further changes to Unreal Engine 5 so that this won't be necessary. Yeah, and I guess in general, my takeaway from this uh, Alpha Point demo and the presentation on it uh, by Kate and Colin, uh, which I really loved, was that UE5 uh, in its current form, they said they kept stressing it's very early. So I think it's going to be a while before we see UE5 games. And um, I think we're going to see some really great looking 30 FPS games on UE5. I'm just really curious about what happens with the feature set and graphics when uh, 60 FPS becomes the main uh, target. Uh, but that's so much to wait and see there. We're going to see stuff like, it seems like Nanite is very uh, feasible in a 60 frames per second game, but developers may not be able to use Lumen uh, in its current form anyway to target such a high frame rate. I mean, right now, l looking at the sheet here, you know, it starts at almost six milliseconds for uh, the quality mode or for 1.0 quality setting. And you set that down to a quarter and it drops to 4.4. And they did some custom stuff to get it down to 3.688 milliseconds. But, you know, when, when you have to hit, you have to fit this within a 16 millisecond budget, of course, right? So that all adds up. So when you combine Lumen with their virtual shadow maps, which are coming in around 3 milliseconds, that's already like more than half of your frame budget. Uh, so like getting, you know, getting to 33 milliseconds for 30 FPS is... That buys so much extra render time. Uh, so I'll be very... And this was at, by the way, this was at 1080p, uh, these calculations. Which is <laughs> so, it's so starting heavy. res. Um, it's really and the, heavy. And this demo, too, is, you know, everyone's seen it by now. It's, you know, it's pretty limited in terms of what's going on in terms of interactivity. There's no, like, uh, AI and, like, moving characters and all these things. So it'll get more expensive. So 60 FPS on UE5 is an interesting question mark for the future. And I hope we get to see more over time there. I just want to put this all into perspective here, because um, if we go back to the dawn of Unreal Engine 4, it was pretty much only the coalition that actually got AAA quality standard early doors, right? Yeah, right. And um, that required a lot of time. Other developers got there, of course, but yeah, they were pretty much the first. So, I mean, I think it's just to emphasize here that um, uh, it is early days still for Unreal Engine 5, even though we're seeing these incredible demos. You know, the coalition are at the forefront of Unreal Engine technology, really. And this is where they're at with it. Still very early. So I'm really going to be interested to see what games we see and when, and also the frame rate targets, as you say, because it does sound really, really heavy. The thing about that that's really good, though, is that co the Coalition is such a close partner with Epic that they are directly working with Epic, it seems like, to basically make Unreal better uh, or more like helping Epic f design the engine to fit the needs of developers such as the Coalition, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that, that tends to only help for everyone else. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's also question marks over Series S. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they, right. This was all on Series X, right? They, they, like, they did mention some Series S numbers. Ah, don't have them off the top of my head here. And I was paying attention so much to the Series X stuff, but it was doable on Series S. But they um, they purposely in the presentation did not mention the internal resolution numbers. And Colin mentioned that they were low to a level that they weren't comfortable with, uh, with the quality settings that they had. So that was another thing, like Series S scaling with Lumen and Nanite well, mainly Lumen, uh, going for 1080p or 1440p output, they mentioned as well, uh, was a little bit too low internal res-wise. So 
that's another thing. Possibly we would see generally, I'm not going to say this specifically for the coalition, but it could well be the case that we will see a 30-60 divide once the technology matures. That's a, a possible route to, to make it happen. Um, but yeah, very interesting stuff. But there's more GDC stuff you want to quickly talk about, right, Alex? So there's three Intel presentations that I'm just going to really skim over. Uh, the first two are concerning uh, the future of Intel hardware, which is interesting because uh, on the GPU front, Intel is getting back into the game with dedicated GPUs, much like AMD and NVIDIA have. And here they had a presentation called Developing for Intel Graphics Today and Into the Future. It is technically, on a technical level, focusing on their current uh, one discrete uh, GPU they have, as well as their integrated graphics, but it is actually about their next-gen offerings, if you read between the text. Um, and they basically mentioned that they're going to have full support for DirectX 12 Ultimate. They are going to have uh, hardware variable rate shading using the same implementation uh, feature set level that NVIDIA has, uh, which is like a little bit further ahead than the AMD one on certain levels. Uh, they're also going to be having hardware uh, ray tracing, uh, which is going to be really cool to see another uh, desktop GPU being able to do that, not from NVIDIA and uh, AMD. And they mentioned, interestingly, as a part of that, uh, their hardware ray tracing support, is that they kind of say, use DirectX 1.0 and not DirectX 1.1. And that is very interesting because DirectX 1.0 came out initially when the only GPUs that were available that could run DXR were and via GPUs. So it was kind of tailored around that maybe. Uh, then when AMD came to the market, DXR 1.1 came about. And as a part of all of AMD's uh, developer presentations and guidelines, they say always use DXR 1.1. Uh, basically, don't use DX 1.0 on us. It'll uh, make the performance not as good as it could be. And DXR 1.1 has some cer certain limitations about like material complexity and things like that. Um, but Intel very specifically said, for us, use DXR 1.0 style uh, ray tracing and not 1.1. I don't know what that means in terms of their hardware or their uh, driver stack. But that is very curious. And I think we're going to see something really interesting when their GPUs come out. Um, the next presentation was about, uh, it's called Program Your Games Today, Prepare for Tomorrow. And this was just another really subtle, not subtle uh, hint from Intel that their next architecture that's coming out is going to have heterogeneous cores and uh, processor implementations. Uh, so they're basically saying that Alder Lake, when that comes out, they don't say this specifically in the, in the uh, presentation, but the entire gist of the presentation is uh, people coding games do not trust, uh, do not explicitly enumerate things about cores. Don't think every core on a CPU is the same. Don't think that every core has hyperthreading. Don't think that every core has the same acceleration of instruction sets. So they're even saying like, oh, one core may not even accelerate a certain instruction set as well as another core, which is very interesting. And it basically says Alder Lake uh, will probably have uh, two very different sized cores from different architectures on the same CPU. Very interesting. <laughs> it is. I mean, um, I'm wondering how this would affect something like a jobs-based workflow where um, uh, tasks get assigned to whatever available cores there are. You know, it, that does kind of rely on a parallel, 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 parallelism <laughs> that would sort of suggest uh, equal clocks, right? So how this is all going to work. I mean, we're already seeing that various cores uh, scale at different frequencies according to load, right? 
But um, how this is all going to play out, I have absolutely no idea. But it's certainly fascinating stuff. For that N Wave thread uh, ultimate job engine version thing you're mentioning there, Rich, uh, th they do say kind of explicitly don't schedule too many jobs or something like that, as well as trust the operating system manager on PC. Uh, so not to be explicit, because they, I think they're going to work with Microsoft to make sure that the scheduling in games uh, through Windows uh, makes these heterogeneous cores work the best as possible. But we'll see when they come out, I guess. Um, and the last presentation uh, at all from Intel that I found really interesting, and the last one I'll be talking about today, is one called Applying DirectX Sampler Feedback, uh, Texture Space Shading, and Streaming with Direct Storage. Uh, really quickly, DirectX 12 Ultimate includes uh, support for DirectX Sampler Feedback, and that's also being used, of course, on Xbox Series X in an even more advanced fashion, as well as uh, Direct Storage Streaming from SSDs. And this presentation uh, really just talked about a very novel way to shade a game using something called text-based shading, which has been used in a game uh, called, gosh, uh, what what is it, uh, something of the, Singularity. Ashes, Ashes of the Singularity. Sing Ashes, oh, I'm going to always forget this name. Ashes of Singularity yeah. uses it too. Um, but the basic idea is decoupling shading from the rasterization step. And the shading is actually done in a texture operation almost. And this is cool because it allows you to shade a certain area or uh, surface on the screen over time. You don't always have to shade the exact same thing every frame. So you're splitting up the shading workload over multiple frames, uh, and it doesn't need to always be updated. Uh, using this, you know, tied with the feedback function from sampler feedback and streaming everything in really quickly with direct storage, allowed them with this novel rendering technique uh, to get a 23% workload benefit, so speed up there, uh, which is really good. And it kind of shows that games targeting DirectX 12 Ultimate on PC and Xbox uh, could end up having really cool performance benefits that we didn't think of in the past. And uh, in terms of other interesting info here is uh, sampler feedback in DirectX 12U requires a hardware implementation, which has, you know, RDNA 2 has it, Turing, Ampere, and of course, Xbox have it. Uh, and their hardware implementation pass was 3.1 times faster than software emulation. So if the hardware doesn't support it, it's actually going to be quite a bit slower. Uh, I don't know what that means but for implementations, but that's just something really cool if you're interested in Windows and DirectX 12U. Uh, that's something maybe to look forward to in the future games using. Well, it's really interesting because um, we're kind of well into what is now defined as the, the next generation. But the point is that a lot of the features that are baked into Xbox and um, slowly becoming evident on PC, we've not even touched them yet. You know, even VRS, which is, you know, um, fairly basic, I would assume, to, to implement, probably not so basic to implement well, as we've seen. But uh, even that is only getting you know quite limited take up in the here and now. But it really is fascinating to see that um, these technologies are in place, they have been developed, but it's still really early days before we're going to actually see the true benefits of them in actual shipping games. Yeah, that's the thing. There's still so much potential here that hasn't actually been experienced. Well, let's move on to the next topic. Um, take two DMC takedown threats to mod DB and uh, the removal of GTA 3, 
San Andreas and Vice City mods. Uh, I think this is your one, right? Alex, what's this all about? Yeah, essentially the publisher of Grand Theft Auto series games, Take-Two, has uh, issued DMCA uh, takedown threats, as I'll call them. They call them notices, I imagine, but they're just basically threats to the, uh, yeah, to the people who uh, uh, run ModDB, which is an amazing, really ancient portal for PC game mods. Uh, and they said, okay, Let's, uh, you have to remove all your GTA 3, San Andreas, and Vice City mods. A lot of these mods go back to like 2005. And, you know, they're, they're old, right? This stuff has been around for a long time. And this is kind of like the GTA modding community is huge. Uh, there's so much being done with this. So just to be clear, all of the mods are going. Most of them are, are uh, already going or gone. And there's a list compiled online that you can find. Uh, there are still some that haven't been taken down because they weren't specifically explicitly mentioned, I imagine. Uh, but that's it. So most of them are getting taken down, at least from ModDB. There's probably other depots you can find these. Uh, but the general kind of story behind this and why I wanted to talk about it is because I think this is detestable. <laughs> um, it is, I don't I agree. think uh, modding is something that has been a part of PC gaming for a long time. Total conversions, semi conversions, you know, partial conversions, whatever, they're all a part of free game, what you can do on PC. And I don't think there is any legal right uh, that a publisher really has to say you cannot mod or game and host mods on your website. I think. They just rely on the fact that it scares the living daylights out of people running smaller web pages that they'll have to, uh, you know, maybe go to court over this and spend a lot of money to prove their points. Uh, so they just the threat uh, makes the effectivity of the um, the removal actually happen. That's why it's removed. It's not because there's any legal precedent, but it's because there's a threat and. This should just not happen. And for the preservation of games, this should just not happen. This is a dangerous part of uh, the worrisome future with this stuff. Where, I mean, this is just one more part of publishers trying to take full control of what you can and cannot do with the software. Well, it's ultimately self-defeating, surely, because uh, you've explicitly mentioned GTA 3, San Andreas, Vice City. You know, what is actually keeping these games alive in the here and now? You know, it's certainly not the original experience, is it? You know, people aren't buying it, you know, uh, on PC to play, you know, these vintage uh, games, I would suspect, for the majority. It's the fact that you can actually enhance them, make them better, explore them. That's the key thing here. And um, as I said, ultimately self-defeating. But it is um, really, I don't know how to explain it, chilling, um, sinister that... Um, yeah. You get these, the, you know, sort of legal threats. I mean, you know, it, there, it's there's a situation where you can, I mean, you know, even in my career, it's been a, a case where you do something in your job that's totally within the law, but you will get leaned on um, by uh, publishers uh, to, to not do it um, with the threat of legal action. And um, there is nothing you can do about it effectively, because no matter how much in the rights you are, you don't have the legal resources to, to fight back. It's just like, you know, and th there are other implications which are equally unsavory, which I won't go into. But it's really, I don't know, it's really not good. But is it not applying to... GTA 4 and 5. I, I didn't Dead, see anything about that. I only saw the, the, the headlines and I saw... They, um, they've had other GTA 4 and probably 5 related mods shut down before as well. I mean, there was whole arguments over that in the past. There was also the reverse engineered projects 
for like GTA and Vice City that had been out there and they had those kind of taken down, but then they managed to come back and I actually don't know what the status is of them. So it feels like they've been fighting this battle for a long time and this is like their boldest move yet. And it's just so, like Rich says, it feels self-defeating somehow. Like to just, this is such a, like the community is, is such a part of this game at this point. So to take this away, you know, it sets a really bad precedent. I'm a little worried for the future. I mean, the implication here, which I find uh, even more disturbing, is that um, in some way the publisher thinks that this is a negative thing. You know, negative negative to whom? You know, <laughs> it's like, you know, people getting more out of the game. Um, it can only aid the sales of these older titles. I don't get it. What is the what is the agenda here? This is the thing. You just don't really know what's going They're on. They're re-releasing all three games? I don't know. And they well, think if they the did, then them? I don't know. You know, I would expect. Well, I would be more understanding of you know people doing these crazy super high end mods for GTA Five when they have a new version of GTA Five coming out at the end of the year. But you know, what are what are what are Take Two's plans for GTA Three at this point? You know, kind weird. Doesn't make sense. Maybe remasters, remakes. I don't know. I, I need to know why they're doing this and. This is the kind of thing you just don't know. You just have no background to it. And I think that's lack of communication and just to go immediately down the legal route. Speaking of lack of communication, uh, the ModDB authors uh, or people who run the website did try and uh, arbitrate uh, through uh, and contact them and say, okay, we got your, your threat essentially. Can we maybe work out a deal, find some sort of different solution here? Uh, and no, no response, no uh, you know, no chance of arbitration, just the threat. That's it. I just want to quickly put a bow on this whole Resident Evil Village uh, performance debacle. Uh, the patch is out now. Um, you are able to play Resident Evil Village with a consistent performance level. I have tested it. It does seem to work um, in, ter in terms of restoring performance to where it should be. It should never have happened in the first place. Um, I said in my first video that I think before a patch came out, Capcom kind of owes all of the people who bought the game an apology or an explanation. All we got in the patch notes was um, they've made adjustments. Adjustments to the anti-piracy thing. This really isn't good enough. Um, I guess it's good that the game does actually work as it's supposed to now. But Alex, what do you reckon? Uh, yeah, I just read on. I don't think this should have happened in the first place. The uh, dead comms essentially for more than two months uh, regarding the game's issues, which were widely discussed. And we widely, you know, we made sure we talked about it in our video and other people were talking about it. The fact that there was no communication about a patch uh, is a big deal for me. I don't know if they'll ever issue an apology. I don't know if these kind of corporations do that thing that often. But, you know, like, come on, you gotta, you have to communicate about your game post-release, not only just be, you know, in those moments when it's necessary. Uh, community interaction uh, and making sure people who bought your game are having a good time is part of it, not just getting their money and washing your hands of it. I mean, here's the thing. Um, typically, uh, companies issue non-apology apologies or don't apologize at all because of the uh, implications legally of, um, accepting liability but in your patch notes if you're saying oh, okay we've we've adjusted the anti-piracy measures you basically have admitted liability 
So, you know, this really is a spectacularly badly handled situation. And um, I don't really want to talk about it again. But, you know, if this situation does uh, arise again, then, you know, I am going to talk about it because, you know, it's just a matter of principle, really. I don't care if you put um, DRM measures in your game. I can understand why you're doing it. But at the point where you're spectacularly impacting the performance of your game, um, basically you're encouraging piracy. It's got to stop. It can't happen again. Okay, well, let's move on. Let's talk quickly. Actually, I want to put this one first, John, um, because this we obviously put out a video earlier this week about Ratchet & Clank's uh, 40 FPS fidelity mode. And um, there still seems to be some confusion about this. People seem to be getting the wrong end of the stick. What, what's it all about, John? So as far as I can tell, uh, and you see this a lot, of course, you know, the headline goes out for the video and the article and all that, and people don't actually watch the content. And then they, they see, oh, 40 FPS, PS5. Uh, it turns into this whole like match thing of like, ah, you know, if this was Xbox, you'd say this, uh, it's not acceptable, blah, 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 you know. The, uh, completely missing the point. It has nothing to do with this. It, it only just happens that the PS5 got a game like this in the first place uh, that does this mode because the game has a 60 FPS mode anyway, if you want that. This is about offering an alternative solution for 120 hertz display owners uh, specifically for graphically demanding games and modes. In this case, it's a mode, but you know, I think relating to our talk about Unreal Engine 5 today, uh, this is especially pertinent because, you know, I I think it's fair to say that there will be games targeting 30 FPS again uh, in during this console generation. And sometimes they might have the headroom to actually hit 40 frames per second. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about this as an option. And the reason this works, and I think we made this clear, but just to stress it again, this only works because of the 120 hertz output because 40 divides evenly into 120, right? So, um, whereas if you have a 60 hertz display or 60 hertz output, it doesn't. So 40, 40 frames per second on a 60 hertz display looks bad. It's full of judder. 40 frames per second at 120 hertz, though, looks perfect. And it even though it seems like less than half, it actually, if you look at the frame times, it really is directly between 30 and 60 and it feels it. You also gain the benefit of faster input latency uh, when using this mode. So let's say you have Microsoft Flight Simulator coming out. Do we, I, I assume that's actually gonna have a 30 FPS cap. I mean, what do you guys think? I, I think it's 30 FPS and then an unlocked mode that they target so, for VRR users. I think so we'll see, it. actually, we gotta see about that, but 40 FPS actually would be an interesting consistent mode. Uh, or let's say somebody puts out a high-end UE5 game and oh, you know, we gotta target a lower frame rate. 40 might still be doable when 60 is not uh, because it does increase your frame time uh, max to like 25 milliseconds instead of having to fit it in within 16. So this is just basically an alternative for lower latency than 30 FPS and a uh, smoother overall performance while still presenting a target that's actually easier for the machines to hit. And this applies to all machines. So this is, this is equally to PS5, both Xboxes, you know, you could even argue, you know, be useful for some PCs, uh, which you can already do this, by the way, on the PC. That, that's well, the if, thing. If you wanted to, you could do it on Xbox One X and One S. They both have. Actually, you're right. Hertz. They have yeah. 120. 
There you go. Exactly. <laughs> so it, it's basically that. Like people, like I saw some people saying, well, you complained that Assassin's Creed Valhalla dropped to 40 frames per second on Xbox, and now you're saying 40 FPS is okay. And it just shows a fundamental lack of understanding of the issue and what's being discussed here. And we're all about consistency. A consistent six, 40 frames per second on 120 out, hertz output looks good. Slow down from 60 to 40 when outputting at 60 hertz doesn't look good and even if you're at 120 hertz that still doesn't look good unless you have vrr which by the way most displays don't really handle vrr ranges under 40 that well i mean i think some of them do but even then you start to get into this weird doubling of frame territory it's not quite the same uh because if you treated it the same way above 40 that you do under it would end up actually like flickering i would imagine it would look it would look bad so this is an interesting solution and I hope we see it more on all platforms as an option where needed. Uh, I still think higher frame rates are the better choice, but that's always not going to be feasible. Like one last example, control was out there right now, right? We know that it basically can do 40 frames per second on all the consoles with ray tracing enabled, uh, offering a 40 frames per second, 120 Hertz mode in that, as a third option would basically mean you get a higher frame rate, but you keep the ray tracing. Uh, let me just try and bullet point this. Uh, number one, it's not just Ratchet that is uh, potentially a viable candidate for this. It can work on any system that supports 120 hertz output. And it could, as I said, 1S, 1X. Those systems could do it, potentially. Probably wouldn't happen. Um, and. Point number two, 40 FPS might only sound like 10 FPS more than 30. And that is kind of like a uh, what the frame rate graph would say, obviously. But frame time, it is entirely in the middle between um, the response of uh, 30 FPS and 60 FPS. Uh, thirdly, there's a lot of, I mean, VRR is the kind of more optimal solution, but I do think it's best uh, served um, when your frame rate is consistently above uh, 45, 50 frames per second, it kind of irons out the um, drops from 60 there. It's a different proposition entirely to 40 frames. I mean, 40 frames per second is 25 millisecond per frame every time if, you're, if your game is you know, properly adjusted for it. Um, and it basically means that, yes, there are games that have overhead above 30, as Ratchet does, as Control does, and you can tap into that extra resource available, more fully utilize the GPU, still get smooth, consistent gameplay. And it feels exactly like a midpoint between 30 and 60, but you uh, retain most of the advantages of your, if not all of your advantages of your 30 FPS quality mode. There's also um, applications here in that um, you can use dynamic resolution scaling on a more granular level. You can, rather than targeting um, your DRS for 30 frames per second. You can target it for 40, for 25 millisecond per frame. And, you know, DRS likes to have a set target to aim for. Um, and you can, that doesn't really apply quite so well to um, unlocked frame rates. Uh, typically, if you're dropping performance from 60, you're at the bottom end of your DRS range. Um, so it isn't really helping there. So it's a win. It's a win for all platforms, potentially. Um, it's a feature of 120 hertz screens and whatever piece of hardware is attached to it. And um, it's just a really awesome technology, a really awesome feature. And um, yeah, 
hopefully that clears up some of the confusion. But yes, it's completely platform agnostic. To be fair, I think I can understand the confusion, right, on the surface. Um, just because, you know, this is a slightly bizarre thing. It's a little different. Um, it kind of, you have to understand the whole, the way displays work and why this matters to even get this, because traditionally we would say, you know, in the past 40 frames per second is not a good target. I, you know, that's what infamous second sun op ran at basically on PS4 and it was terrible. And it was because, because it was a 60 Hertz output. Exactly. Um, so you can't fit the, uh, the frame rate, uh, equally into the refresh rate. That's the point. So. Yep, not great. Um, but this is, you know, a really interesting feature that we really want to see going forward uh, in a in a bunch of games where it is appropriate for the title. You know, where the gains are really going to be noticeable. Um, but you know, let's move on. Okay, so um, John, you're still working on your mystery DF retro project. Can you name it? Can you talk about uh, it? We'll, but, we'll, um, na we'll name it next week. Uh, I started basically working on it this week. So here's the thing. I mean. It's not a current generation project, obviously, because it's DF Retro, but you are using Unreal Engine in it. How does that work? So one of the problems that we always face with videos, of course, is one, how do you present, you know, some interesting visualizations? I often use filmed footage, but sometimes you don't have the object that you want to film. But also when doing DF Retro, you know, I usually use a green screen now. Uh, so that I can use this camera because, you know, the background here, it is what it is, but it doesn't always fit the themes, right? So this week I started playing around with essentially building a virtual set for myself to stand in and realize that the, the potential of this is to sort of make your own custom uh, room. And, you know, the first one here I've done, it's relatively simple, uh, but, you know, it's kind of fun to, to make some material choices, pick the art, you know, play around with all the different settings in Unreal to get something that looks effective. And, you know, when, when actually composited against my video frame, it ended up looking surprisingly realistic almost, uh, just due to the, the nature of Unreal Engine and the way it handles materials, you know, and I used their, um, you know, you basically in the, in the sequencer, you can use like different virtual lenses, if you will. So I actually picked a lens that sort of somewhat matched what I was using to film myself to, to get a soft depth of field behind it. Uh, actually, I picked a slightly better lens with a shallower depth of field, but it looks because, you know, you have the choice, but Unreal's own depth of field effects look so darn good. And it's better than any filter you can do in Adobe Premiere. It's um, it, it ends up looking good. But basically what I've realized is that, you know, I've been fiddling and using stuff like After Effects before, and it's very slow. It's so slow and like creating stuff in that and some of those programs you know, it's fun, but like actually working with it is often clunky. Uh, the export times when you actually do anything complex. I mean, I appreciate how those programs have a lot of like features you can just plug in and get working. You know, you want particles? No problem. You got them. You just stick them in there. Uh, but it's slow. Unreal Engine is so performant and fast. And because Unreal Engine 5 has things like Lumen uh, now included, you can basically like do real time lighting like within your own little playground and immediately see the results. And then you just go into the sequencer. You can basically use a timeline to set up your camera system and all these virtual camera rigs and camera cuts and you just do whatever you want with it. And then you export it out as a movie file and you get a nice high quality pre-rendered version straight from the engine that you can then slot directly into Adobe Premiere to use in your project. And 
Um, there's so many other programs designed to bring 3D stuff into video editing tools. And it just I'm just amazed at how flexible and fun Unreal is. So let's get this straight. Um, obviously, Unreal Engine, it's being used for a whole bunch of stuff. Um, it's not just a game engine anymore, but it's to the point now where, you know, we essentially work solo on our own projects in our own homes. It's kind of like not really, a, it's a kind of semi-professional setup at best. Yeah, very but semi. You're able, yeah. <laughs> at best, um, you know, uh, but the bottom line is that you're able to use Unreal Engine to create backgrounds for your content that look pretty spectacular exactly and this is just the beginning because i am really starting to see the potential and the limitations in that i'm not like an expert at like actual 3d modeling for instance so like you know i'm not going to be creating super ornate backgrounds just because the skill required to actually make those objects you know it's high and i but you know you can still do so many powerful things with Unreal Engine just as is. And, um, you know, there's a lot of, you know, I was fiddling the other day, like I figured out, oh, you know, you can make a simple blueprint to play video on like a wall. There's actually a media player function in that, but you can wire it up to a texture and just render out a video to a texture and stuff like that. And just all the stuff was stuff you could do in the Adobe products and, and others as well, you know, um, and I found that stuff very clunky and time consuming in comparison. So it's, it's a, it's a fun way to make some cool looking effects and scenes and extra assets for your video production, uh, that, you know, and I, I posted something about it and somebody else suggested, um, what about the Omniverse from NVIDIA? And that actually is an interesting point as well. I, I need to, we played with that, right, Alex? And yeah, yeah. I guess there is actually potential there as well for the similar kind of thing, but both of these kind of have the same purpose where because the, the lighting and material systems are so advanced now, you can do so much uh, without, you don't even need any advanced assets right now to make something that looks good. Uh, so you don't need like a, a whole art team for this kind of stuff. Uh, but you know, in this case, for instance, what I've done with the backgrounds is I'm actually swapping out uh the artwork in the room to correspond to the theme of whichever specific game in the series I'm talking about. So when it changes and you can do stuff like key up different, like dynamic lights, like, and have them kind of move around. You can have objects move around in there. You know, if I had more time, I'd do more stuff like for scene transitions and try to integrate the lighting onto my video feed as well. And, um, you know, th th there's some fun potential there. So I'm, I'm very curious to play with it more, but, I think it's a good option for people that do video production now just to like a, a fast way to get results. Do you need any sort of programming knowledge to do it? Or, you know, if you're up with After Effects? I only used it for a couple little things. And actually, I mainly just use Blueprints, uh, which is like not really that. But, you know, certain functions need need actual Blueprints, but a lot of stuff can be done without that. So... Um, it's just kind of fun to poke around. The only problem I have in right now is I, and Alex was help working with me on this too. We couldn't get the hardware ray tracing feature to, to work with Lumen for some reason. Uh, it just would not like everything's enabled, you know, it looks like it should work, but it just doesn't, it won't switch on. So right now it, you know, with the Lumen reflections, you have sort of the SDF reflection, uh, combined with screen space, like a screen trace for details. Right. So 
you're combining SSR with sort of a, a you know, a nicer rather than using a cube map, you're using like a better representation of a more accurate one. Though I guess because I'm literally filming inside of a cube, I could actually I could actually use a cube map there and it might look all right. I, I don't know. I have to think about, I have to play with that. But yeah, it's pretty terrific. And also the you know, the fact that Unreal Engine is free for these kind of applications. Exactly. It's kind of mind-bending, right? I can't awesome. recommend it enough. It's a, it's a cool, very capable engine. You know, Lumen is a, such a big deal for this, I think, because, you know, if, you, if you, you know, you used Unreal Engine 4 before, a lot of stuff still had to be baked out all the time. Uh, and there was a lot more waiting time and, like, you know, testing, iter iteration time. But now, like, just being able to see all this stuff in real time, it sort of unlocks your potential in terms of, like, oh, I can do some really fun things with this now and you just immediately see the results to me it has the same feeling i get when i'm filming b-roll you know what i mean for that like you have the camera out the slider out the lights it's the same feeling of placing lights and moving things around there and stuff like that and it's it's very uh enjoyable okay well that sort of wraps up our df content discussion for now i'm going to move on to some support to q a Okay, so a couple of questions here to begin with. Uh, just kind of house cleaning. Uh, just don't want to sort of tidy this stuff up. Um, Steam Deck, people are still talking about it. Our DF Direct special is out, but in case you haven't watched it, there's a couple of questions here uh, we should probably just quickly skirt over. So the first question is from Kirill Budnik. He's actually <laughs> posted uh, his name under the Cyrillic alphabet. So uh, thank you. Thank you to Dmitry in Russia for giving me an English pronunciation. Uh, um, question. Will it be possible to gauge the performance of the Steam Deck now to install Linux, use a Zen 2 CPU with a similar number of cores and similar clocks, use an RDNA 2 GPU with tweaked clocks and number of CUs, run Steam Proton benchmarks at 720p. The video will be similar in concept to Rich's speculative video on Series X before it released, um, per the Steam Deck uh, DF Direct special. Um, essentially, the main issue I can see with that, and other people have tried it, is that um, the Steam Deck has a 15 watt power limit, and it's really uh, impactful on performance. And um, you know, people are talking about, hey, it's got 1.6 teraflops, this is better than PS4. Uh, just to put that into perspective, I've got um, an Asus Zephyrus G14 with an integrated GPU that does 1.8 teraflops, pretty much the same as uh, PS4, but it can only do Doom Eternal at 720p60 with some pretty heavy DRS drops. Um, and obviously PlayStation 4 is outperforming that significantly. So, you know, teraflops is just one part of the equation. Um, producing rigs uh, on a in the desktop space that are trying to mimic something with a really tight power budget. I'm not especially keen on that, but watch the DF Direct uh, to, to see everything we've got to say about that. Um, let's move on to the next question. One for Alex here from Eric Benoit. Again, a quick Steam Deck question. Do you gentlemen think the Steam Deck will be able to handle most of the games from the Total War series, like Rome Empire and Shogun 2. I've not played them, so I can't really map it to the capabilities of this particular APU, but what do you reckon, Alex? Um, the older games should be able to be done at 60 FPS, so like Rome and the initial Shogun, for sure, uh, and I guess um, Medieval, if you're into that one. But the newer series games, ever since they switched over to DX11 or so, have been surprisingly single-threaded. Um, which is 
a little bit disappointing always, I always thought. Uh, so I think you'd be really limited to 30 FPS those. Uh, and I guess the bigger question is uh, how well does the keyboard and mouse setup map to the controller? Let's move on to another question from Oliver McKenzie. Um, a couple of weeks ago, it was widely reported that Microsoft is hiring engineers to work on machine learning projects for PC and Xbox. Given the existing machine learning extensions on Xbox Series consoles and the relatively high TOPS performance of Series X in particular, is it likely that a performant ML-based upscaling solution similar to DLSS could be implemented on Xbox? Well, Microsoft have said they're doing it. They've described it as active research. Um, it, I guess it all comes down to this theoretical tops. Um, what do you reckon, Alex? Uh, I guess it depends on what their quality thresholds are and also how much uh, millisecond frame time they are comfortable with. Um, because if it's really about the usage case. Um, like I, I mentioned back then when I did a video, I can't even remember the context of the video necessarily, but I compared it to like an RTX 2060 where the RTX 2060 has 2x the theoretical tops. Uh, that a Xbox Series X has. And the reason why I mentioned that in the video is because it took around a little bit more than, I think, 1080p to 4K upscaling on an RTX 2060 in DLSS 2.1 at that time, probably was uh, around like 2.5-ish plus milliseconds. Uh, so that would mean, theoretically, DLSS running on a Series X uh, using these matrix multiplication, whatever, uh, would take around five milliseconds. And that sounds bad, because we're targeting games at 16.6 .6 milliseconds at 60 FPS, usually on PC. But if you're a game targeting something like 30 FPS, you could use the equivalent of a machine learned super sampling reconstruction on Xbox, uh, even at a higher like five millisecond cost, because you know you have that 30 FPS buffer at 33.3 milliseconds, and you could spend a lot more of the frame time instead of generating pixels, you can use it for things like ray tracing and really cool stuff. Uh, so I think uh, regardless of whatever they end up making at the end, I think it'll be very usable uh, given the game specs that are going to use it. It may not be used necessarily for 60 FPS games, though, that we're, like, we're used to seeing it on PC. I think the thing to bear in mind is DLSS took like five years to develop. Um, but on the flip side, we know, I mean, we saw some initial um, research, direct ML research from Microsoft uh, with Forza Horizon 3, you know, this was years ago. So, you know, when Microsoft talk about active research, it's not that they're responding to DLSS, they want their own DLSS. I'm sure they do, but they've got their own projects happening. It's been in development for some time. And uh, I guess it's kind of um, uh, watch this space, right, John? Yep, absolutely. And we've been saying for a long time that machine learning uh, solutions are a key part of the next generation of games in general and computing in general. So obviously a lot of stuff's being worked on. Okay, let's move on to the next question. This one is from Joe Esposito. Curious what your opinion is on the rampant devotion to leaked info. One side maintains it's fair game as long as no laws are broken and that leaks allow people to plan or budget better. Uh, the other side argues that it dampens in excitement by killing any surprises and makes companies less likely to experiment should a leaked concept get negative attention. Thoughts, John? I think companies in general obviously just hate leaks. <laughs> like nobody wants their plans leaked early, right? But I, I, I think it is mostly fair game. Um, I, I can definitely see where he's coming from in terms of dampening excitement. Uh, that, But at the same time, you know, Mm. 
I think I think all you're seeing is just people are excited for this stuff, right? They care about this stuff. The only reason the leaks matter is because it's covering something that they're excited about, right? And, and you know, it's uh, I, I don't think you can easily quench that thirst by just saying, nope, you know, it's gone. And I, I don't think this is going to change. And I, I think it's completely fine as long as you're within the law. So here's the thing, because obviously Digital Foundry has leaked stuff before. <laughs> oh, <laughs> um, yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, specifically, um, the you know, we went out there with the Tego X1 for the Switch. We had the Switch um, docked and mobile clocks. Um, I think it's, it is fair game. If you've got something meaningful that you want to tell the audience, um, if it's sort of setting up expectations, if it's uh, sharing information that is you know, going to appear anyway, uh, I don't really have any problems with it. My job is to tell people about games and, and gaming hardware. Um, hmm. I think we're, you know, we don't do it anymore, really. I mean, there's a few hints here and there. And uh, I, I think when stuff is out there and we know that it's true, I think, you know, it is worth sort of chiming in with our, uh, with our two cents. Um, however, there's a lot of stuff that we do know that we don't leak. Um, because what, you know, apart from making us look fantastic and, uh, you know, pre-seeing and highly connected, which, you know, what does it ultimately serve? You know, what, what purpose does it actually serve? So there's a lot of stuff that we do sit on. There's a lot of stuff that we kind of don't really want to ruin the surprise at this point. Um, if there is a public interest angle to it, absolutely, we will talk about it. But fundamentally, I think the thing that really kind of winds me up is, uh, okay, Mike, let's say company X, Microsoft, has got a presentation at five o'clock today. We know what's in it. There are certain people on Twitter who will just post it on, you know, three or, three or four o'clock. That, you know, that is, you know, and it is simply glorification to say, okay, well, I'm, you know, I'm part of the industry. I'm fully plumbed in. I know this stuff is happening and I'm going to prove it. And what purpose does that actually serve? Absolutely none. Um, secondly, I think uh, this sort of, you know, Joe Esposito de defines it as rampant devotion to leaked info. The problem is that, you know, I'd say approximately 50% of it is incorrect <laughs> or lacks con uh, context. So, you know, there's a whole bunch of discords out there. There's a whole bunch of private forums uh, there's some forums out there that are developer only and, um, you know, leaks happen there. It all kind of disseminates onto Twitter sooner or later. And a lot of it is wrong or a lot of it lacks context or a lot of it, you know, there can actually be leaks that are true. And, you know, there's some stuff that happened uh, in a recent conference, which we actually thought was going to happen in a conference months earlier. Um, so, yeah, the leak is inaccurate, but then it becomes accurate. It's really difficult to navigate what you should be telling your audience at any given point um, and why you want to inform them about it. Really difficult. I don't know. What do you make of all this, John? I mean, you know, this whole concept of um, what you leak and when and why you leak it. Man, it's really tricky, it, isn't it? it? It is tricky because how do you define what's a valuable story, right? Like... But I, I really think it is this whole there is a there's a big difference between just sort of like uh, 
revealing that you know something like right before it goes live or like you know some it depends on what the info is if you just find out about something that's not that that useful or interesting and then you just put it out there um it doesn't it, it doesn't really serve anyone but at the same time i think what's actually going on is i think there's a subset of people that are i almost say addicted to leaking if you know what <laughs> i mean where they they get a certain high i think from putting out information into the public and it doesn't matter what it is. They just want to put out information that's not known and just get it out there. And I'm not really saying who's guilty or not guilty of this, but uh, there's definitely some folks that, especially with that maybe get things wrong more often that are too quick to jump on it. Like, so it needs to be both interesting, good information for the audience, but it also needs to be like a solid lead, right? Like, you can't just like hear some like some one thing from one guy and be like, oh, this is definitely happening now, and then put it out there like that. That's it's not right. It's not yeah. a good idea. This is the thing. Think. It's the the wish fulfillment leaking, where there yes. isn't actually any factual basis for it whatsoever. Yeah, gosh, oh my god, and, I talked um, about that for ages. You know, yeah. it's you know, and it also it's what I've called in the past the void of information. You know, if a platform holder puts out specs for something and uh, it doesn't have a particular spec point you wanted, uh, then, you know, chances are the hardware doesn't have it because, you know, why would they hide that particular spec point? Things change too. Like we've heard things before that seemed pretty solid and they probably were at the time, but then, you know, decisions are made, things change and uh, what ends up coming out is not that. And we've seen it before and, you know, we didn't share those things usually because we weren't sure how much of a how much that actually represented the final so you kind of have to make that call as well to determine is this is this valid info like that's really useful or well that's an interesting point because um you know i think there's a statute of limitations up on this one but i saw some developer documentation reached recently that charted the um capabilities of the playstation 5 dev kit and um it's sort of you know dev kit one does this doesn't do that but you know the initial PS5 dev kits didn't didn't have hardware accelerated ray tracing support. I think we can talk about that now. But obviously the final console final console does. So you know if we put out a story saying oh you know this PlayStation 5 dev kit no hardware RT you know it's going to set expectations. You're actually hitting on this point here. It's it's also about how you report the information, right? You can take that info and present it in different ways, and this is something we try not to do even though some, you know, but like if you just go out there and say, Oh, the PS five doesn't have hardware ray tracing and present it in that like, sort of like big story. It doesn't have this feature kind of way. Uh, then that's, I think that's very ir irresponsible and it becomes problematic. So, you know, if you were to release a story like that, you'd have to be very careful with what you say in terms of, setting expectations of like oh this is the current state of things it doesn't represent necessarily what's coming but this is just kind of what we know at the moment you know uh not that i think we would necessarily do that kind of story per se but i think a presentation aspect of it is very important there's also the fact that a lot of leaks are second hand third hand and don't have the context so for example you know the ps5 dev kit you know the roadmap says this dev kit doesn't have hardware accelerated ray tracing but, you know, obviously, uh, the later ones do. It's highly likely that the roadmap there would have said, yes, you know, dev, you know yeah, it's coming. But, you know, in the here and now, it didn't have it. But obviously, it, it had no 
implications for the end user whatsoever at the end of the day did it so there's no point really leaking it i could see somebody having not the full story on that like oh they hear the dev kit doesn't have ray tracing but they aren't aware of the roadmap they don't understand what's coming and they just report on that one fact and without the context of what's coming uh it paint the picture is very different okay well let's move on to the next question this one is from simplex john could you elaborate on how you're using black frame insertion on your LG OLED? What TV settings, what Windows slash game settings are best for BFI? So I talk about this a lot and I've shown Alex this as well, so he can attest to the effectiveness of this feature and why it's so excellent. But there, there are some things to consider. Black frame insertion, obviously it's literally inserting, it's pulsing the screen. There's a, there's, it's basically blanking out the image between a frame. Uh, it's similar to what happens with the CRT, but it's more like instant where it's like on off and that helps eliminate the motion blur. The problem is, is when you're, when you're pulsing the screen in that way, uh, it dims the overall image, but how much it dims depends a lot upon your settings and the content. So if you're at 120 Hertz with 120 frames per second, this is actually the best case, especially with HDR because the brightness drop is so minimal that it's basically a non-issue and you get like unbelievably crisp and clean motion um 120 hertz by itself also great now 60 hertz is tricky though if you're in sdr mode at 60 hertz it's true that black frame insertion just by its nature when when so i use the high setting on the lg cx oled uh specifically because that that has a long enough duration that it actually it effectively does eliminate motion blur there's no sample and hold persistence blur that your eyes can pick up anymore the low and medium settings still have some blur uh, so i don't really use those but yeah at 60 hertz in sdr the drop in brightness is pretty significant it actually gets down to like what sdr screens should be calibrated to somewhat if you're in a dark room so it's not great for a brightly lit room, but one way to sort of overcome that is to use HDR, whether or not it's actual HDR content or if it's just tone mapped. So on both on PC and PS5, and which just can tone map everything, this is kind of a useful thing. It's not entirely accurate, but you can essentially like you load into Windows, you can switch Windows to HDR mode, right? And then there's actually a slider to sort of adjust the tone mapping, which kind of adjusts the light output as well that you kind of get from your screen. So if you're doing 60 hertz black frame insertion, you're using HDR with tone mapping, um, you can actually greatly overcome the the less of the loss of brightness that happens when enabling black frame insertion. Uh, and that's kind of the key. So I find that as long as you have either HDR or you're at 120 hertz, the brightness loss is minimal and not a big deal. Uh, it really only becomes noticeable for me at 60 hertz SDR. And even then, like in the evening or in a dark room, I don't mind it at all. But, you know, if you have the, the windows open, it's brightly lit in your room, then yeah, it's going to appear pretty dim. Uh, but as far as when I use it, it actually depends on the content as well. Um, like side-scrolling games, games with uh low motion blur uh, on camera movement stuff like that benefits tremendously from it um i think we tested the halo master chief collection on that at 120 hertz alex remember that and just doing the spinning test the, the a great way to see it is like look at a piece of text in the scenery or like an emblem on a piece of armor just focus on that and as you spin the camera and 
I'm not saying you have to do this to notice it. Like it's painfully obvious to me no matter what, but this is a good way to understand what to look for. If you're not used to this, just look at that text, spin the camera around at an even rate. You'll notice that with black frame insertion on high, the text remains completely crisp and legible, no, you know, no matter what. Uh, whereas you turn that off, you end up with persistence blur and it just sort of smears out. Um, and this is, you know, the same at 60 or 120 Hertz. John, really quickly, my question for you is, have you ever tried um, 4K 120 Hertz, uh, but 60 FPS limited? So that's another, th that's, a, that's where you wouldn't want to use this. And this is also an issue on Xbox because I say issue, but it's not, it's, this is not an Xbox issue. This is because the Xbox, like the PC, allows you to set your refresh rate independently of the game. So you can have the Xbox always output 120 hertz. Great. If you have a, let's say you have a good example is like Sonic Mania. It's a side-scrolling game, 60 frames per second cap, right? If you're outputting at 120 hertz at 60 frames per second, what happens is exactly the same as outputting at 60 hertz with a 30 frames per second game, but with more frames. And by that, I mean, you essentially get a double image effect, right? Because there are not unique frames. Uh, normally, persistence blur actually kind of, uh, well, it blurs that together. So you don't actually see the gap between the frames. But if you go back on a CRT and look at this, you would have noticed, especially with 30 FPS, you actually do see the frames sort of like the gap between the two frames as you move around, right? It's exactly the same with 60 on a 120 hertz screen, which is why when I play a game on Xbox using black frame insertion and the game only supports 60 frames per second, uh, I always switch the Xbox back to, to 60 hertz output. Um, and I also should say that black frame insertion is really not very useful for 30 frames per second games. I would say, because all you're doing is essentially getting rid of any extra blurring you might get um, as you, between the, the frame gap, which is going to exist no matter what, like because you're at a lower frame rate uh, that doesn't match the refresh rate. So you can leave it, especially with a lot of motion blur, it's kind of like, all right, you can, you don't really need it there. So like Doom Eternal, for instance, you know, black frame insertion is nice on that, but it's not necessary with motion blur on because the motion blur kind of, you know, blurs the image anyway. Uh, and it's, I think it looks awesome in that game. Like it adds to the, to the look of the game, but so not every game needs or benefits from having crystal clear motion, but there's a lot of genres that do. Uh, and so it really is, I kind of go back and forth just based on what I'm playing. Um, I had a, a question quickly about, um, from trans tech girl, it's not on the docket, but I'll quickly slot it in, which is, um, basically asking about how best to use a PC with uh, the LG 48 inch uh, OLED screen. Um, what kind of burn-in prevention techniques I use. Uh, well, I've had the 48 inch OLED as a PC monitor since December. Uh, full disclosure, Microsoft sent one to test with Xbox Series X and then they wanted it back and I was you kind of bereft. Back. Yeah, so I bought one um, because um, <laughs> It, it really is a game changer as a PC monitor. It's just incredible. But yes, there are concerns that, um, particularly with the static nature of the desktop, this could lead to burn-in. So I can tell you it's like seven, eight months now since I got um, mine. And um, basically, it's as good as the day I bought it. In terms of um, potential burn-in uh, prevention strategies, I just have a really dark desktop. And um, I don't like to... Um, 
keep windows open the taskbar i have that um scrolling off the bottom when i'm not using it which is a bit of a pain but you know if it helps uh, the screen that's what i do um but i don't oh the other thing that i do is i don't leave them the display turned on if i'm leaving the room or whatever just turn it off um, but beyond that, I haven't really given much thought into um, using the screen any differently than I would any other PC monitor. And as I said, it's the, as good as the day I bought it. So simple mitigation strategies there. And I still think this is the best PC monitor I've ever used. And um, the fact that I can use it for PC, the fact that I could use it for consoles, the fact that, you know, if I'm just relaxing and I want to watch um, a bit of Netflix, it just works. You also screen. get, um, yeah, exactly. And you also get much better sound than you would with a PC monitor. Um, so I don't really need uh, external speakers. It's got a remote. A good point, because I, I don't use the speakers on my uh, OLED because I have a home theater system. But when you're in like an office setup with a monitor, that's actually kind of convenient. And the speakers are not bad for that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, you know, I paid like £1,500 for uh, this 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 screen, and I'm pretty happy with it. But these days, you know, if you're looking at Deals Foundry on Twitter, it's like a thousand on a good day, which is stacked up against uh, PC monitors. It's exceptional value. It's, I just can't recommend it highly enough. PC monitors, the high-end PC monitors, get very expensive. Um, so, and they often they're often missing a lot of key features. Uh, one more thing though, before we move on, I should mention about black frame insertion. And this applies to most nearly every monitor that supports this. Uh, but there are at least a few exceptions and it's hopefully it'll become more common. Essentially you can't combine black frame insertion with VRR currently on like most displays. And that definitely includes LG's OLEDs. Uh, you have to pick and choose. So if you have a game where you want to use it, uh, you have to turn on VRR. Otherwise, you will not be able to activate it. And it's the same on PC. If you're like using G-Sync or something with the LG OLED and you, you, know, you decide, actually, this game, I can run it at a locked whatever and I want to use black frame insertion, you have to disable VRR to use it, uh, which is a slight annoyance. Uh, I think there are some PC monitors out there, not many, like maybe like just like two. <laughs> I, I actually don't know. Blurbusters has more info on all this stuff. Actually, they're, they're helping a lot with like the knowledge that they have on this stuff is insane. So definitely go check them out, but they're, they're pursuing this as well. And I think there are at least some monitors that allow you to combine it. And that I think is the future of this stuff, especially with um, maybe even technologies like micro led. Like if you can get the benefits of OLED, but uh, with a potentially much higher brightness, you could you could ramp up the brightness that the screen uses per f like pulse. So when you blink out the screen, it doesn't lose as much perceptible brightness. Uh, but either way, th this is kind of the future, I think, of, of what we need to get to that CRT quality motion. We've got two final questions here. Going to quickly rattle through them now. Um, it has been claimed in the past that I specifically choose <laughs> questions to wind up uh, my fellow staff members. And um, yeah, I'm going to put my hand up on this one. Uh, 
Alex has been on holiday. He deserves a bit of uh, a bit of jostling. <laughs> a special treatment upon his return. Uh, this question from Arts Vandalay. Much has been said about cross-gen development holding back the potential of the new consoles. Now, can the same be said about the PC? <laughs> in the sense that targeting a, a wider range of platforms could hinder console games design. Take the PS5's Tempest engine, geometry engine, engine or storage system, for example, and how PCs will take years to have that sort of tech as a standard, if, if ever. ever. If ever. <laughs> this, 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 <laughs> this comment was made to Whoa. just make me go like, Whoa! It was. Let me be honest, it was the if ever bit that made me... Uh, <laughs> Want to use it? <laughs> oh man, this uh, Alex is so wound up now. All there's right, so hear. many things to say here. I guess um, <laughs> when you use the word PC, it, it, it implies so many different PCs of a variety of configurations. Uh, when we look at Steam um, hardware surveys, uh, people like to focus on and I assume they do it in a derisive manner, deriding manner. Uh, they like, oh, the average PC has a GTX 1060 and a 1080p screen or something like that. And they just assume that is the actual average PC. It's like, no, that's the, what is it called? The median average. It's the thing that is most common uh, in terms of what the hardware is. Actually, there's a lot of devices that are a lot more powerful than that. Um, so there are actually a lot of devices out there that have uh, hardware um, and software uh, access that is the equivalent of or better than what you find in the PlayStation 5's Tempest Engine, Geometry Engine, and, and the like, because uh, the Geometry Engine is essentially a cut-down version of the mesh shader, uh, and uh, Tempest Engine is just, what, accelerated audio, right? So um, you can do accelerated audio through software or on the GPU if you want on PC anyway. Um, uh, the, the thing regarding uh, years of tech for, what was it, SSD storage, that is more an interesting point. Um, I think uh, we talked about it right before the PlayStation 5 and Xbox Series X release that it's going to take years anyway for these systems to be used in kind of large and important, significant ways uh, in multi-platform development anyway, because it takes a while to architect these things and make sure you're using them right. Uh, we've already seen that, uh, that it's taking a bit of time. Uh, so I think uh, it's a non-issue that not every single PC out there has a PCIe 4.0, um, you know, 5.5 gigabytes per second uh, uh, drive. I think it's a non-issue and in two years, three years when games are actually starting to be using these SSD-like functions, uh, then it'll be a deal. And by that time, anyway, a lot of people will have tech that's good enough for it. Uh, so I don't think PCs are holding back cross-gen development at all. I'm just going back to the conversation I had with Mark Cerny about PlayStation 5 when all of this stuff first appeared. And uh, he did say that there were, you know, my point was, you know, PlayStation 4 was a system that was essentially a PC. It was taking, you know, uh, he called it a supercharged PC architecture. And um, uh, PlayStation 5 seemed to be a little bit more exotic at first glance, right? Because there's a lot of stuff in there that the PC isn't doing um, at that point or that we knew it was doing. We kind of had some inkling because of the, um, essentially the blueprint that Microsoft had laid down for the future of PC based on DirectX 12 Ultimate and the feature set of Xbox Series X. There's a lot of commonality there. So, you know, it is going to come eventually. It's certainly not going to hold back 
the PC um, or, or the consoles rather. And if we look at stuff like um, you know the geometry engine, that's actually in um, most. Well, it was in RDNA one, I believe, and RDNA two certainly has it. Has it. Um, and you know there are equivalents uh, within Turing and newer GPUs, so you know it's it's definitely there. It's not going to be holding back the consoles. Um, and I think there's also the question really of mitigation strategies because the consoles are fixed in stone and they have to be like that for years to come, whereas the PC is an evolving platform. And typically all of the new features that have been arriving in console, um, debuted on PC first. I mean, we're talking a bit, you know, a lot about ray tracing, PC first. We talk a lot about variable refresh rate displays and how good they are, PC first. So, you know, it's basically the, a broader technological trend going forwards uh, where everything benefits and the consoles have to make specific investments to be, to, to last, to, you know, to, to work well across the majority of the generation. I actually think that uh, they've made some really good bets on both PlayStation and Xbox. Um, holding back, I don't think so. I mean, possibly there could be arguments about the storage side of things on PlayStation 5, which is, you know, super brute force in the here and now, capable of delivering uh, exceptional performance. But at the same time, you know, um, Microsoft, they've architected um, aspects in PC and Xbox that aim to address the same thing, but in a different way. So, you know, we were talking earlier about sampler feedback streaming. Sony's solution there was mass bandwidth. Microsoft's solution uh, for DirectX 12 Ultimate and for Xbox is essentially to optimize so you don't need that level of bandwidth. So, you know, there's basically trends that all that everybody has identified and we will get there just with different implementations. So I don't think anything is holding anything back particularly. I think the only, again, the only thing that uh, kind of worries me is Series X, Series S is memory. I'm on the record as saying that's, that's you know, um, problematic, certainly for ray tracing uh, support. But um, yeah, I don't really see that as being a big issue. So I did enjoy asking the question though. So thanks, Arts Vanderlei. <laughs> Uh, final question: <laughs> Do any of you, and I'm looking at I'm looking at you, Alex. Do any of you play with inverted vertical controls? We exist. Strength in numbers. They can't shame all of us. That's from Matthew Santa Maria. Matthew Santa Maria. I'm. There are dozens of us. There are dozens of us. <laughs> dozens. <laughs> Uh, I, I always like pushing forward to look down in games. Uh, and for me, the historical reason why I did it and still do it is because of joysticks and flight simulators. Uh, it just seemed very natural to me. And when I picked up probably an Xbox, OG Xbox controller for the first time, I immediately set it to inverted because I was just used to that kind of, for some reason, pushing forward is looking down. So that's about it. But I like it a lot. Uh, I do not play inverted, <laughs> except for when I'm forced to, because if you go back to a lot of uh, earlier 3D games with 3D cameras, not only do they invert up and down, they often invert left and right. So like the whole thing is just inverted. And back then they often had no, no option to change it. I know Turok and N6, wait a minute, wait a minute. Th we just figured it out. Turok and N64 has inverted for vertical. Ah, uh, you, you can't change it. 
Maybe the, maybe this is the reason. <laughs> maybe that, you that fell is in actually love with the it. reason. Uh, maybe that I, I can't. You actually... picked it up and it felt natural, and you just it, it never let you it into go. Its world. Yeah, <laughs> on PC they have the ability to invert mouse and yeah. port. I know that. That's true. If it starts off inverted, uh, uh, not on N64. That's right. That's probably it. Maybe that is it. Turok made me the man I am today. Well, I put that question in there because uh, we do account share. We have like a digital found for your account. <laughs> I'm sticking this too, yeah. And uh, what happens is uh, maybe I'll play a game that Alex has been playing and uh, <laughs> yes, the controls every time. are reversed. <laughs> and uh, it's infuriating. I want to throw the controller at the screen. I want to let out a, a bestial roar of, of frustration. It's that fir first moment. You pick up the controller, you press up, and it looks at the floor, and you're like, dang it, Alex. <laughs> Alex! Go, go through the Alex! menu. Alex! So this is kind of like mini payback in shaming you uh, to around 50,000 viewers. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, yes, uh, do any of you play with inverted controls? The answer is Alex. Uh, he exists. Uh, I'm not sure there are strength in numbers. Uh, I can't shame all of you, but I'll try. <laughs> okay, uh, that's it. That's uh, Digital Foundry Direct Weekly, number 20. Uh, we finished. <sighs> and uh, I can let out a sigh of relief now. I uh, just want to thank you two guys for joining me on this one. And um, we'll be back next week with lots more tech chat. If you enjoyed the content, please like, subscribe, share, ring the bell for instant uh, or possibly instant notifications, depending on uh, how Google's feeling. And uh, DF Supporter Program, if you want to get some questions in, if you want to talk to the team more directly, if you want early access to DF Direct Weekly and all of the other goodies that we do, then please uh, consider that at patreon.com slash digitalfoundry. But that's all from us for now. See you next week, and thanks for watching. Alex! Alex! Alex.